Howdy. You're listening to the Texas A&M RUF podcast. Hope you enjoyed the talk. Howdy. Howdy. Tonight's uh, scripture reading comes from Ephesians 3, uh, verses 14 through 21. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Now bow your heads with me. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity that you've given us to meet tonight, um, especially in a stressful week like this, uh, where anxiety might be high. Uh, I pray that you'd give Austin the, the wisdom uh, to preach your word and to uh, put it deep within our hearts that we can take it out and uh, apply it to our lives and just rest in you this week uh, as we deal with exams and everything else. Uh, in your son's holy name, I pray. Amen. I did this as a joke. Howdy. Welcome to RUF. Uh, look, my name is Austin McCann. I'm an RUF campus minister here. Uh, we're glad you're here. Man, how about the Max, dude? Whooping up on uh, volunteers last night. That was awesome. Uh, that was great. Down the wire. Good game. Uh, I watched the end of it. Mississippi State lost, but the Aggies won. So. Uh, still a great night. Look, if this is your first, uh, this is your first time walking through the doors of all things, and this is your first time to RUF, we're really glad you're here. Really, here at RUF, we we hope we embody this, and we believe here, and we say this all the time that you're never so good that you stand outside the need of God's grace, while at the same time you are never so bad that you stand outside the reach of His grace. And we hope you, that you actually taste that when you come to RUF and experience that when you meet new people and get to know. I don't know, me and the interns, we hope we embody that. And so we're glad you're here. Whether you're convinced of Christianity or whether you're unconvinced and you're skeptic of Christianity, we're, uh, we're glad you're here. We want you to bring your questions. Um, so if you've been with us, we've been walking through the book of Ephesians. Uh, this is what we do. We believe that God's word uh, is inerrant. It is uh, his word that he has revealed himself to us. And so what we do every semester is we just take a book of the Bible and we march through it. And we've been walking through the book of Ephesians. And so as we come to our passage tonight, We've seen this before, because there's a pattern that Paul thought, that Paul follows in Ephesians. That Paul's habit is that after giving some dense gospel instruction, he will stop and he'll pray. And we already saw this in chapter 1, I guess at the beginning of our series, where Paul delivers some wonderful, deep gospel instruction. And right after, he stops and he prays that the eyes of the Ephesians that their hearts would actually be open to receive and believe these truths. And tonight, Paul is doing the same thing. He's just spent time explaining to these Ephesian Christians the lost and dead condition of their hearts, but how God graciously intervenes to make us alive in Christ. 
And last week we saw the consequences of that. That he not only reconciles us to himself vertically, but he also reconciles us all horizontally to one another. That we're new citizens, that we're part of a new family, and that Christ actually dwells in our hearts and we're united to him. And tonight, Paul follows that same pattern. Because after all of this gospel instruction, he stops and he prays. He intercedes on behalf of these Ephesian Christians again to pray that all of this downloaded information would not just be informative for their minds, but actually transformative for their hearts. In other words, Paul understands our weakness. He understands because he repeats this pattern that the tendency of all of our hearts, the pattern of our hearts, is that you can know something without truly experiencing it. Right? There's a, uh, there's a story of a child who had cycled through the foster care system, and he cycled through a lot, a lot of different families' homes. And he, he never had someone who was actually constant and stable in his life to trust. And so he, used to, he got used to telling himself, well, I just got to look out for me. But he was finally adopted by great parents who actually loved and treasured him. And the moment that his parents, or the moment that the judge declared the adoption, at that moment, there was actually a new truth in his life. That his parents will never change. And he doesn't have to look out for himself anymore. That's the truth. But does that mean that all of his trust issues are immediately over? No. Because two or three years into the adoption, he still ran away a couple of times. He still tried to steal whenever he could. Because he was still, what was true outside of him actually hadn't been experienced and realized inside of him. He was legally adopted and loved, but, was still, but was, it was still going to take time for him actually to live out that reality. And see, Paul says this is what we struggle with. Because he understands how weak we are in actually living out of what is actually already true of us. And we need help. We need to be strengthened and reminded. And so the question tonight is how are we strengthened by God to experience what, what are already is true of us in Christ? So we're going to look at three things tonight. If you're a note taker, here you go. Uh, we're going to look at the who of Paul's prayer in verses 14 to 15, the how of Paul's prayer, and the confidence of Paul's prayer. Okay, so the who of Paul's prayer, the how of Paul's prayer, and the confidence of Paul's prayer. So first, the who of Paul's prayer in verses 14 to 15. Well, to answer our question how we are strengthened by God to experience what is already true of us in Christ, it's important for us to point out really quick who Paul is praying to and who he is praying for. So first, who is Paul praying to? Well, in verse 14, we find that Paul is on his knees, which reveals not only his physical posture, but also the posture of his heart. Remember, Paul understands the true condition of his heart before God's grace came plunging into his life. Paul understood, right back in Ephesians 2, chapter, or chapter 2, verse 1, that the deadness of his sin, which he once walked, being alienated from God, but God, being rich in mercy, saved Paul by grace through Christ and adopted him as a son into his family. So Paul approaches God in a posture of humility, understanding what he has been saved from, but also in confidence in the complete access that he has to his father as God's son. So Paul is directing his prayer to a father who delights 
and answering his children. So that's who Paul is praying to. But who is he praying for? Really, I, like after studying this passage, this I believe is one of the most fascinating things about this prayer. And, and I believe it's actually a sign that Paul is actually experiencing the very thing that he's praying for. And this is key, right? We've talked about this in the past throughout our series. But do you remember Paul's circumstances when he's writing this letter to the Ephesian church? Paul is a prisoner in Rome. He's actually bound in chains. He's a prisoner. He's isolated and he's alone. And it's easy to forget that. And it brings some important perspective when we're actually reading this prayer. Because what's shocking in this passage is not only what Paul is praying for, but also what he's not praying for. Notice that Paul doesn't begin this prayer by asking for his freedom as a prisoner, or for comfort, or for someone to come and rescue him, or even for his physical well-being. Instead, in the midst of suffering, what is on Paul's heart? Actually, the better question is, who is on Paul's heart? See, Paul is praying for others in self-forgetful love. He's saying, how can I keep these Ephesian Christians from being discouraged? So there must have been something that Paul was experiencing, even as a prisoner, that was strengthening him to encourage or even think about encouraging others. <laughs> and like, I, I don't know about you tonight, but like, when I'm suffering or upset about something, just ask my wife, like, or, or much less, like, I'm just tired or having a busy week. Like, if, if we were honest, not only is it just, like, hard to pray enough, like, if we were to list some of the hardest things in a Christian life, prayer would probably be at the top of a lot of our lists, right? But not only is it hard enough just to pray, but my heart is just far from thinking about and praying for others. And, and I don't think I'm alone in that. And honestly, because we say to ourselves, like, it just feels a little impractical and kind of silly. Because we nod our heads at Jesus and we say, sure, like, like that's nice and all. But what would really be helpful in my life right now is to know if I'm going to land that internship this summer. Or, like, to know if I'm ever going to meet my spouse in college. Or, I don't know, to know, like, when I'm finally going to be free from that addiction. Or will like, I ever get over being rejected from that student org that I really wanted to be a part of? See, God does care about all of those things. Absolutely, He does. To the, he cares about it more than you do. But He cares more about you being strengthened in the knowledge and the experience of the love that He has for you in His Son. So that all of those things, instead of ruling you or dominating you or enslaving you, would actually be another opportunity for you to trust in Him and grow more and more into the image of His Son, Jesus. That's what He cares about. God cares about your growth, your sanctification. He cares about you becoming more and more like His Son. And this is what we find Paul caring about too. So that is the, the, the who of Paul's prayer. Paul prays to his Father because he knows that his Father delights in giving. Jesus himself says in Matthew 7, verses 9 through 11, What father among you, if, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a, a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to good, give good gifts to your children, 
How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? That's who Paul prays to. And Paul also prays for Ephesian Christians because despite even his own circumstances, he is experiencing what is already true of him in Christ. But the question is how, which leads us to our next point, the how of Paul's prayer. Right, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, but remember that the aim of Paul's prayer is for us to be strengthened in the heart, right? Or here he uses the, in, in verse 16, he uses the phrase our inner being, which is the same thing as the heart. And if you were with us a couple weeks ago, I explained how the heart is not just limited to our feelings or our emotions, but more holistically, is really three-dimensional and made up of our mind, our wills, and our emotions all together. It actually sits below and determines how your mind, emotions, and will go out into the world. It's, it, it's the, the most you thing about you. <laughs> and Jesus himself, in one of the most incisive things he says about the heart in Luke uh, chapter 6, verse 45, he says, the good person out of the good uh, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the, his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. God loves to talk about the heart because he's obsessed with our hearts. <laughs> because what flows up out of your heart, what flows up from the treasure that is in the deepest vault in your person, determines the way that you interact with this world and the people around you. And so the Bible assumes, Paul assumes, that because we are hardwired to worship and to love, we must see that even, even when we become Christians, there is always something competing for the throne of your heart. Always. Like things that should be loved third or fourth in our lives can easily become the first things in our hearts. And it's usually the good things in our lives. And it's kind of deceiving. Right? Think about this in relationship to prayer. Right? If a solid career is what your heart desires most, if that's your heart's treasure, I've got to graduate college, and I've got to get that degree, and I have to get this career. If that is your sole treasure, if that is what's driving all of your motivation, then instead of your prayer, what happens is when that is actually threatened or in great jeopardy, it will actually shape the way that you pray. Because instead of your prayer actually strengthening you and resting in God as your true security, it will end up crushing you because of anxiety and worry. If finding a spouse is what you treasure most, if that's what dwells on the throne of your heart, then God ends up turning into a vending machine by using prayer as a means to an end for your own gain. And if you don't get what you want, then prayer just becomes pointless. If anything other than Christ dwells on the throne of your heart, unless you're asking Him to replace Himself there and to remove an idol, then prayer will always weaken you. It will always let you down. It will always annoy you. It will always feel tiresome to you and pointless. See, this is why Paul is praying that our inner beings, our hearts, would be strengthened by the power of His Spirit, that Christ may dwell on the throne of our hearts. That He would be the center. That He would sit on the throne of our hearts because it is only then that prayer actually begins to strengthen you and encourage you and secure, secure you and bring you joy and relieve your anxieties and give you unwavering confidence when your life seems to be falling apart. And to actually begin to help you experience 
what is already true of you, which is what Paul is experiencing right now. It's only when Christ dwells in our hearts that we can join the psalmist in Psalm 27-4 and say, One thing I have asked of the Lord, one thing I will seek after, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord to behold the beauty of the Lord. Old theologian St. Augustine said, We love God, therefore, for what He is in and of Himself. He is not a means to an end. He's the means and the end. And it begs the question tonight. Do you find Jesus beautiful? Really? Like, is He more precious to you than productivity? Is He more beautiful to you than your boyfriend and your girlfriend? Is He more valuable to you than financial success? Is He more secure to you than your own reputation? And this is what I love about this passage. Did you catch what Paul said? He says that this strengthening, this actually encouragement, this strengthening within our hearts, happens in comprehending with all the saints. How does the love of Christ ordinarily come crashing in? Ordinarily, it's never alone. But the Christian life is a community project. We need one another. It's like, will Aggie UF be known as a campus ministry? Is it known as a campus ministry that finds Jesus beautiful? Like, is this a place that tastes and experience, experiences the reality of Christ's beauty? I hope so. And I think a great place to start is prayer. That when we're praying, that we're, we're actually admitting all here that we're helpless. That we can't conjure up that beauty ourselves. That God alone, through the promises of His Word, by His Spirit, asking Him to show us again and again and again in our one-on-one interactions, in our small group Bible studies, and even here in a large group, that He would strengthen us to live out the reality that is already true. That Christ is the one who reigns in our hearts, and He's beautiful. Is RUF a ministry that longs to behold the face of Jesus? Um, there's a story of a woman named uh, Fanny Crosby. And really, after some strange circumstances, when she was six years old, or sorry, when she was six weeks old, she completely lost her eyesight. And for 95 years of her life, she, she never saw a thing, just darkness. And throughout her life, Crosby was actually, some of the worship team may know this, well, Crosby was actually a famous hymn writer. She wrote, wrote some very famous hymns, Blessed Assurance, uh, Safe in the Arms of Jesus. She wrote over hundreds of hymns. She was extremely gifted. And one day, a well-meaning preacher kind of came up to, her, to Fanny and said, Fanny, I, like, I, I think it's a great pity that God did not give you the gift of eyesight when he showered you with so many other gifts. And Fanny kind of smiled and said, well, well, you know, preacher, if I was given one wish at birth, it would have been that I was born blind. And the preacher's kind of like, okay, like, why? And she says, because when I get to heaven, the first thing that I will ever set my eyes on is the face of Jesus. And I don't want anything else to cloud my vision of him. And look, 
When Fanny saw Jesus, I promise you, I promise you, she forgot about all the things that she had never seen. I promise. She didn't regret one bit all that she supposedly missed on this earth. What do Fanny Crosby and Paul have in common? That Paul is praying that we would have in common. Is that instead of viewing Jesus in the distance with our, our circumstances in the foreground, they made the flip. She and Paul realized that Jesus is reality itself. That His love and who He is is primary. So she started viewing her circumstances and her blindness through the reality of Jesus. So what does Paul ask that the, these Ephesian Christians would, would really grasp? That you and I would have actually move into our hearts and really change us? I find this astounding. I really do. Think of, think of what all Paul could have said, right? You need to have the strength to comprehend God's sovereignty. Or the strength to comprehend the Lord's wisdom. Or you need the strength to maybe even just comprehend the Lord's holiness. Which all those things are vitally important, okay? But Paul centers on one thing. He centers on comprehending the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of the love of Christ that surpasses all understanding. That the love of Christ, that is the thing that Paul says we must know and comprehend. Paul is praying that we would not measure Christ's love by our feelings or our circumstances, but measure it by what? Where is Paul, while he is in prison, writing this letter, setting his gaze? Where is he looking? Paul is praying that we would join him in surveying the wondrous cross. Because in Luke 22, we find one who is greater than Paul, who is on his knees, who is interceding for us. 2,000 years ago, when Jesus is on his knees in the Garden of Gethsemane, sweating drops of blood, he asks his Father if there is any other way that God's cup of wrath would be removed. And when he figures out there isn't, he willingly goes to the cross. And who did he have in mind? Who is Christ praying for? His bride. You. Paul says this is a love that we comprehend. A love so broad that it encompasses every tribe, tongue, and nation under the ends of the earth. That no matter your background, your family lineage, your nationality, your, your age... Jesus' blood is sufficient. Look to the cross. A love so long that God's love for you in Christ is timeless. It began with Him in eternity past. That He'll never grow tired of you. And you'll never outrun His love. We look to the cross. And a love so high that He didn't just die for you to forgive you of your sins, but He wants to be with you forever. So you've been raised up with Christ and seated in the heavenly places. And a love so deep that Jesus leaves the brilliance of heaven and makes himself nothing and subjects himself to the brokenness of this world. And on the cross, he goes further and experiences your shame and bears your guilt. It is on the cross that Jesus receives the fullness of God's immeasurable wrath so that you and I can receive the fullness of his immeasurable love. That's how deep the love of Christ goes for. 
It's eternal. And in verse 19, Paul says, what's the result of this? Like, like what's the consequence? He says, the consequence of this is that our hearts would be filled with all the fullness of Christ. Like a teacup consuming the oceans of the world. And like, why is that not a crazy thing to ask for? Because Paul understands who God is. Which leads us to our last point. The who of Paul's prayer, the how of Paul's prayer, and finally, the confidence of Paul's prayer. So what's Paul's response? What's his response to this outpouring and this understanding of the fullness of Christ as he is in a Roman prison, writing to other Christians, trying to encourage them, and the reality that's already true of them in Christ? He breaks out into a worshipful doxology, a confident expectation. Paul concludes his prayer in verse 21, that the church in Christ will bring glory to God forever. Paul begins his conclusion in verse 20 by saying, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we ask or think, according to the power of the, at work within us, Paul is spotlighting God's matchless power at work within us, His infinite capability to assure us of His love. And so what do we learn from that? That God loves to assure us of His love for us far more than we can think or even imagine. We truly have no idea. Um, there's a story of a pastor named Ricky Jones, and he was, he was at this missions conference, and he was, he was listening to this man tell the story of how he bought a camp. And this man had made like really good money in his life, really strong career, and he was getting ready to retire. And upon his retirement, his retirement plan was to buy an RV and spend the next 10 years traveling all over the West to fly fish, which sounds pretty awesome. I mean, that's a pretty good retirement plan. Um, but around the same time, his wife starts spending time at a local orphanage. And actually, after a lot of conversations, on their way to buy the RV, his wife convinces him that they should go and adopt this teenage girl that she's become close to. And he's sitting there, and they're arguing for a while, and he's like, look, I'm just ready to retire. And she's like, it's okay. She's 15. It'll only be three years. She'll be out of the house, and we can go out west. It'll be great. And he, he finally folds. He's like, okay, fine. Three years, we'll adopt her. So they go to a doctor. But the problem is that she has a best friend who's 12, and she won't leave without her. And so the dad's sitting there like, oh my goodness. And he starts debating his head, uh, what about the RV, the fly rod? Okay, uh, six more years. I guess I can do that. But there's another problem. The 12-year-old girl has an 8-year-old sister and a 5-year-old brother. And at the conference, Ricky's watching here, the man's like, okay, so now we're adopting four children, the youngest being five, and suddenly the visions of the RV and the retirement just disappear. And he says... He's asking himself, like, what am I going to do as a 64-year-old man with a 5-year-old? Well, instead of retirement in an RV, he gives it up, and he buys a camp to raise his adopted children. And after the talk, Ricky actually walked up to his 6-year-old son, and he looked at his son, and he says, hey, buddy, I bet it's fun to live out of camp. And the little boy just says, well, it's a lot better than an orphanage, I can tell you that. And Ricky just kind of laughed and realized, this kid has no idea. Like, he has no idea. 
It will be 40 years before this kid actually understands what was sacrificed to get him out of that orphanage and into that camp. And then Ricky thought of us. Because it's going to take a million years, actually all eternity, to even begin to understand the immeasurable dimensions of God's love for us in Christ. What it took to get us out of our sin and into His family. He gave us His Son to make us His children. And you'll never plumb the depths of that. Paul says, above all else, whatever your circumstance, wherever you find yourself in life, What you truly need is for the Spirit to strengthen your inner being so that you would comprehend again and again and again for all eternity the breadth and the length and the depth and the height of Christ's love for you. Today and for the rest of our days. That's what we're called to do, to live out of that reality. That's an invitation. Let's pray. Father, in the old famous hymn, you see, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've known less days than to sing your praise than when we first begun. Lord, I pray that you would help us today that your love would become a reality in our hearts. That as we come before you in prayer, helpless but confident, that you help us to see again and again the immeasurable beauty and love of Jesus. This is his name we pray. Amen. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode of the Texas A&M RUF podcast. If you're interested in joining us for a large group, we would love to see you at All Faiths Chapel on the north side of campus across from Sabisa at 8 p.m. on Wednesdays. Go ahead and follow at AggieRUF on Instagram for updates about any other events we're putting on. We hope to see you around. Thanks and gig'em.